Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Dwajak, Michigan. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, the Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention, ECAP, is set to roll out an accreditation program designed to train and certify ministry executives in skills that prevent sexual abuse. And we note two passings this week. Open Doors founder, Brother Andrew, so-called God Smuggler, and the longtime president of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, Dan Busby. We'll have more about both men later in the program. We begin today with the controversial decision by Christian musician Chris Tomlin to tour with the scandal-ridden Hillsong United this fall. Yeah, first a little backstory. In April, Hillsong Worship announced that it would pull the plug on a tour that it had planned uh, with Casting Crowns. And according to Tomlin, Hillsong offered to let him back out of this tour in light of the emerging scandals. However, Tomlin stands behind both the tour and Hillsong United. Tomlin explained his decision by saying that he had known the leaders of Hillsong United, the musical groups, for years. Yeah, he said, I know their hearts. I know their hearts are broken, just like everybody else's. The only difference is they have to live it and get lumped in with all this media stuff, and they have to take the hits for that. Tomlin continued, everybody goes through hard times, and life is hard, and life throws curves in many ways. To stand there and say, you know what, in the midst of that, I worship you, God, that is the Bible. That's the scripture, and that's what we read. But the decision is not without its critics. Yeah, that's right. And I've got to say, Natasha, including me, uh, it's no coincidence. In fact, I think that Tomlin has a new album out that needs supporting. So he's got a financial disincentive for canceling the tour. Some have raised questions about using music by the scandal-plagued Hillsong at all during worship services, which uh, results in their continual receipt of royalty income. In fact, a Christianity Today article back in May pointed out that four of the top 10 worship songs sung in churches right now come from Hillsong, and uh, it considered the question of whether churches can justify using the music or even being associated with the music uh, because of the ethical problems of revenue going towards Hillsong. And they also talked in a larger term about separating the art from the artist. Well, our next story is the latest chapter in a story that is in some ways started a half century ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, The daughters of the founder of Grace College and Seminary's music department have released a six-page statement detailing how their father victimized between 100 and 200 people during and after his tenure as a music professor uh, and then later service at two churches. Some of the alleged, alleged offenses took place nearly 50 years ago, but they continued well into the 21st century. Don Ogden was the founder of the music department at the Winona Lake Seminary in Indiana and declared that he loved being a servant of the Lord. He passed away in 2015 at the age of 88. 
Yeah, but uh, the statement uh, that was released from his daughters this week said that Ogden also had been a chronic sexual offender. He had a sexual attraction to young boys that he indulged even at age 80. Now, six years after Ogden's death, that would be last year, a whistleblower contacted Ogden's daughters and said that the alleged predation on young boys had been occurring for roughly 40 years in homes, malls, youth conferences, choir and music tours, and other places. The statement from Ogden's daughters said, our father used his position, his power, his wit, and persuasion to gain the trust of young men and later perpetrate crimes against them that would change their lives forever. And what's particularly tragic about this story is that Ogden's struggle with uh, pedophilia was not a secret. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's another reason why we should consider it today, even though it took place many years ago, because it's another example of where people who probably should have spoken up or taken action failed to do so. So, for example, in March of 1993, police actually arrested Ogden. He was 66 years old at the time on suspicion of aggravated sodomy in Wichita, Kansas. Um, A 16-year-old boy alleged that Ogden solicited sexual favors from him kidnapped him from a local mall and forced him to have sex with him. There were no charges at the time, and the case was eventually closed because both parties ultimately stated that the act was consensual. So, uh, again, uh, Natasha, pretty horrible situation. The the male, 16 years old, and, and even Ogden himself didn't deny that the event took place, that, but that Rather that it was a consensual event, and at the state of Kansas at that time in 1993, 16 was the age of consent. Now, even so, about 14 months after the arrest, uh, Ogden resigned from leadership roles at Grace College and Winona Lake Grace Brethren Church, where he had served for 42 years. Ogden later confessed to a downplayed version of the assault and said that he had an allurement to young boys. The sisters said in the statement that they released that they were mortified after finding out this information about their dad. Yeah, and in their statement, the Ogden's daughters, the sisters, called out the leadership at Grace College and Winona Lake Grace Brethren Church for not disclosing or examining suspected misconduct years earlier. Uh, The daughters urged the college and the church to run investigations to help uncover the victims of their father. As a result, Grace College hired an attorney from Campus and Workplace Solutions and conducted a private investigation. The investigation did confirm that Ogden had committed sexual harassment and sexual assault during his employment at Grace College. The analysis also revealed that some former employees were aware of the misconduct while it was going on, but failed to act appropriately. Our next story is from Virginia. Yeah, a former Virginia youth pastor who has who was convicted of two counts of soliciting sex acts from a minor over the internet back in 2014 has pleaded guilty to distributing child pornography online this year, uh, back in April. Uh, court documents state that Derek Wallace Peacock, he's 39 years old and he's from Highland Springs, Virginia, used an encrypted 
messaging service called Wicker to distribute child pornography uh, back in the spring using an account that ironically was called VA Pastor, short for Virginia Pastor. Peacock was on probation for the two prior convictions at the time, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Eastern District of Virginia. Peacock was the Children, Youth, and Discipleship Pastor at the Church of God of South Hopewell, but he was suspended when the 2014 charges were brought against him. Yeah, and this recent case was brought as part of the Project Safe Childhood, uh, which is a nationwide initiative uh, by the Department of Justice that we've actually reported on several times uh, over the course of the last year here at Ministry Watch, because unfortunately, um, their efforts have surfaced child predation by uh, either current or former pastors. And the Department of Justice program is designed to combat child sexual exploitation and abuse. Now, Warren, coverage of sexual abuse cases are absolutely horrible to hear, but these kinds of stories have spurred new action to prevent them. So what's the latest on those efforts? Yeah, the efforts are uh, largely coming from a group called the Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. We reported a year ago that they were trying to roll out or just getting started creating a new accreditation program, which would offer safety standards to help organizations become uh, more proactive and go from a what they call a re- reactive approach to a uh, preemptive one. Uh, and after beta testing that project with about 40 ministries, the program's leaders now say that they hope to roll it out in January of next year, January of 2023. Uh, ECAP, again, that's the Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention, asked a committee of risk management professionals, lawyers, abuse prevention experts, and practitioners who work with children to help create the standards around governance, safety operations, screening, training, response, and other protocols for child abuse prevention. Last year, the Florida-based nonprofit started testing the concept with a group of charter members, mostly involving churches, plus a few schools, a summer camp, and a speech and debate league. Yeah, ECAP plans to have a fully accredited um, charter member program when the program launches early next year with several other candidates still in the process of completing the accreditation. It will close the charter membership um, designation whenever they have reached 50 members. In an interview with Ministry Watch, ECAP Executive Director Jeff Dalrymple mentions several lessons learned through the trial so far. Yeah, chief among them that many ministries simply are not as prepared as they think they are and as ECAP had hoped they would be. They lack basic child safety policies and procedures and the training needed to encourage safe environments. The, uh, Dalrymple said this to, to Ministry Watch, most ministries operate with a good amount of assumed trust, which is exactly what a predator is looking for when it targets an organization. Most ministries do not recognize the liability they potentially incur every time they are responsible for children. Furthermore, Dalrymple said most ministries don't have a response plan for abuse allegations. 
Yeah, the staff may have some idea of their state's reporting laws, but lack an understanding of other details involved in the response, such as care for the victim, maintaining transparency and objectivity, cooperating with authorities, informing insurance, and developing policies to avoid repeat offenses are just a few areas that churches need to consider before an allegation of abuse is ever brought against them, Dalrymple said. Well, Warren, we have to take a break here. When we return, news from the Microfinancing and Poverty Alleviation Ministry, Opportunity International. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, up next, the story we promised before the break about Opportunity International. The 50-year-old organization has divested its banking operations. Yeah, in 1971, Opportunity International began its ministry to provide what it called financial solutions and training that would empower people living in poverty to transform their lives. And it has accomplished this goal uh, in many areas of the world, at least in part using microfinancing, small loans that would allow, you know, individual entrepreneurs, uh, sometimes uh, women living in poverty situations to buy a sewing machine, for example, simple stuff like that, but effective stuff. Uh, it established ultimately banks to provide loans to entrepreneurs and small businesses in developing countries. Now, using that model, it grew significantly. Yeah, it did. In fact, in 2016, it had revenue of more than $60 million, but it began to divest its banking operations then, and its revenue has decreased to uh, $21 million. At least that's what it was in 2020, which is the latest year that we have uh, financial information. Within the past year, it has mostly divested its ownership in banking operations altogether. Now, it still holds a majority own ownership share in one bank in Ghana, uh, but other banking interests um, now have moved from majority to minority interest of between 2 and 20%, essentially turning over the ownership um, of those uh, banks to to you know, local owners, which is a good thing. Now, Opportunity International um, found other mission-aligned investors to take over uh, the ownership reins. So what is the organization doing now? 
Well, as I said, it's been around for 50 years. So Opportunity International uh, had over the years gotten involved in lots of ministries that were not microfinancing, not related to owning a bank. And um, so they're still involved in those ministries. 80% of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. It also has operations in Asia and Latin America. And those programs are mostly educational and agriculture programs. It trains farmers to be more productive and also how to access markets. Um, to date, Opportunity International says it's helped more than 540,000 farmers in sub-Saharan Africa to build resilient livelihoods for themselves through small-scale farming. Our next story is another one that is in some ways a consequence of the June Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. Yeah, that's the Dobbs decision, which, of course, at this point, I'm sure everyone uh, is familiar with. It overturned uh, Roe, but did not ban abortion, as some have said. Uh, It did, however, send the issue back to the states, and the states have been um, rapidly sort of scrambling to adopt and adapt regulations of abortion. And that's where this story comes in. California Attorney General Rob Bonta, who is pro-abortion, has issued what he calls a consumer alert warning uh, to Californians about what he calls the limited and potentially misleading nature of the services of pregnancy, crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers, as they're often called. Bonta encouraged Californians, and I'm quoting from him, who believe that they have been a victim or target of deceptive, misleading, unfair, or unlawful conduct uh, by a pregnancy center to file a complaint with the attorney general's office. And while California is moving in the pro-abortion direction, other states are taking steps towards pro-life. Yeah, more than a dozen states, in fact, have passed fetal heartbeat laws in the last few years, making abortion illegal after a heartbeat is detectable by ultrasound. Now, how many pregnancy resource centers will be impacted by the attorney general's ruling? Well, that's a great question. There are about 179 pregnancy centers in the state of California. That compares, by the way, to about 144 abortion facilities. It's also worth noting that pro-life pregnancy centers have existed, you know, all throughout the Roe v. Wade era, long before uh, the Roe v. Wade era. In fact, the oldest one, in fact, started in California around 1969 or 70. Well, in our next story, there's a new and possibly final chapter in the story of a pastor from southern Georgia. Yeah, hopefully it will be the final chapter in this strange story. Mac Devon Knight, he's 45 years old. He lives in Kingsland, Georgia, at least up until now he has lived in Kingsland, Georgia, who in addition to serving as a pastor has presented himself as a mortician, a restaurateur, and a tax preparer, was sentenced this week to 29 months in prison, nearly two and a half years, followed by three years of supervised release, and he's also ordered to repay $149,000, all of this in restitution to the Small Business Administration uh, for payroll protection plan and other COVID-related relief fraud. He'll have to surrender a Mercedes-Benz S-Class that he also bought with part of the money. Now, we've reported on Knight in the past. Yeah, we have. Knight uh, has had at least three prior felony convictions for other acts of fraud, and we last reported on him uh, earlier this year, back in March, when he pleaded guilty to the charges that he's now being sentenced for. 
Now, Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return, our weekly round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we'd like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, up first, we have Houston Baptist University. At least that's what it used to be called. It's changed its name. It's now called Houston Christian University. Uh, The name change was part of a rebranding effort to appeal to a broader range of students, not just Baptist, and expand the school's enrollment. Uh, The president of the school is a guy named Robert B. Sloan, who I should say, in a spirit of full disclosure, is a friend of mine. I've known uh, Dr. Sloan for many years. Houston Christian University more accurately epitomizes our student body, Sloan said, and reflects the faculty, staff, alumni, and communities that we serve. Um, I should also add that the school has grown significantly under Robert Sloan's tenure. It now has an undergraduate enrollment of 2,780. It has uh, distance learning enrollment of more than 5,000, and it plans to continue growing. It hopes to have 4,200 Uh, on-campus students within the next few years. And we've had another resignation in the Southern Baptist Convention's leadership. Yeah, we have the president of one of the Southern Baptist Convention's largest seminaries resigned uh, last Friday, less than four years after he took office. The man's name is Adam Greenway. He was elected president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth back in 2019 in hopes uh, of trying to help the school recover from the controversial tenure of former President Paige Patterson, who was fired in 2018 for mishandling abuse allegations. Now, Greenway resigned from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary at the seminary's executive committee meeting last week, which we reported on Natasha in our podcast a week ago. He said at the time that he would take on a new role at the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board, IMB, which is sort of the foreign missions wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. But since he made that announcement, he's also backed away from that position as well, saying that he did not feel the Lord's peace in taking that new position. So to be honest with you, at this point, it is not clear what he will do, whether he will go back to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary or perhaps take another role. And we have a couple of deaths to report. 
Yeah, we do. Um, we First, I'd like to mention Don Hinkle, who is a longtime Southern Baptist newspaper editor known for his conservative politics and his colorful bow ties. Uh, he died uh, this past week. He was 68 years old. For two decades, Hinkle was the editor of The Pathway, which was an official publication of the Missouri Baptist Convention, which is one of the largest Baptist state conventions in the country. I should also add that I knew Don Hinkle. We were not close friends, but I knew him well enough to know that he was a true champion of Christian journalism, saying that there was a need for journalists who pursue truth to go into journalism motivated by their faith. And we also note the passing of Dan Busby. Yeah, Dan Busby, a certified public accountant who ultimately uh, became president of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, died on Wednesday. He was 81 years old. Busby served as senior vice president for the ECFA from 1999 to 2008, and then as president from 2008 to 2020. During his presidency, the number of ministries maintaining membership with the ECFA nearly doubled, reaching a total of 2,400, including 50 of the largest churches in the United States. The Nonprofit Times named Busby one of the top 50 nonprofit leaders six times from 2010 to 2015. And we also wanted to note the passing of one of the most significant ministry leaders of the 20th century. Yeah, though, if I told you that Anne Vanderbilge had recently died, you would probably not know who I was talking about. However, Vanderbilge is best known as Brother Andrew, the founder of the international nonprofit Open Doors. Brother Andrew came to international attention back in 1967 with the publication of a book called God's Smuggler, uh, the story of how he smuggled Bibles into closed countries behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War era in a Volkswagen. I've got to tell you, Natasha, I read that book when I was a kid, and it had a really big impact on me, as I know it did on many others. In fact, the book went on to sell about 10 million copies and, as I said, helped launch Open Doors. Today, Open Doors works with persecuted Christians in more than 60 countries where it still distributes Bibles, but also emergency relief, vocational training, community building, and other essential help. Any final thoughts before we go? Well, a couple of quick items. Uh, I was in Nashville last week and had a great time visiting with Ministry Watch friends and supporters uh, last Thursday. Uh, and I'll also be hosting another similar lunch in Charlotte in October. Uh, in fact, we've picked a date, October 26, and I'll be having more to share about that in the weeks ahead. I'll be in Newport Beach, California on November 15th. So if you're in either Charlotte or Southern California area, Newport is just kind of south of Los Angeles in the Orange County area. If you live in those cities, shoot me an email and I'll provide more information. I'll make sure you get an invitation. Um, all of these lunches, by the way, are free. They're just our way of saying thank you for being a part of our work. And I also want to remind you that if you make a donation to Ministry Watch during the month of September, which, by the way, we've only got a couple of days left in September, so you've only got a day or two to take advantage of this offer, we'll send you a copy of Restoring All Things as our thank you gift. This book is one that I wrote with the Colson Center's John Stone Street a few years ago, and it features stories of great ministries doing great work all over the country. Just go to ministrywatch.com 
and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Kim Roberts, Bob Smetania, Shannon Cuthrill, Jessica Eduralde, and Ann Stike. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.